Well, hi everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here, and I'm with an old friend whom I've not seen for a long time, but we've just been in a class together, namely Alec McCow. Hi, Alec. How are you? I'm quite well, thank you. You're chipper, old thing. And this fine, sunny day in in Perth, at at Murdoch University. Right, indeed. In my tiny little office. Which is technically Perth. I, I... I can I can make this office bigger. Fantastic, Doctor Who sounds. That's right. That's the TARDIS landing. So that's a pocket makes, TARDIS. Makes the, yeah, and I'm, it's Doctor Who in your pocket. This is the afternoon of the expanding man. That's right. I'm just pleased to see you. So, Alec, tell us um, what you've been up to recently. Um, well, I retired in 2007, semi. So I'm still doing some work here at Murdoch. Um, I come in um, one day a week and I take my PhD supervisions, which have been ongoing or new new ones, um, one of which you've kindly examined, about which we cannot speak, <laughs> at least not in public. Right. Okay. Um, and I take the honours seminar for the for the fourth year students. Um, and um, the, well, that's about what I do here, um, and, and you know, and I continue to do a little bit of research now and then, but nothing very heavy. I've um, I live semi-rurally now, quite a long forty mm-hmm. kilometres south of here, in Serpentine Jarradale area, um, and I have a bush garden with birds in it, and that needs looking after. Um, and I've taken up um, playing music again, um, and. Uh, returned to um, a, 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 a youthful pastime of, um, of painting pictures. This is the George W. Bush, Adolf Hitler. It, it is. It's inter- the, that's right. Well, well, George and I do share an initial. Right. I don't know. Adolf W. Alec, Alec W. McCown. Yes, that's Bush. right. So that's yeah. that's kind of currently where things are now. I, I'm not doing a lot in terms of academic research anymore. Um, you've probably seen my publication Vitae, um, and it's it's probably almost as big as yours. But um, I think I've pretty much said all that I want to say, and now mm. it's really just a question of the world catching up. How are we doing? Are we a long way behind oh, you? Oh, or are we well, making up the yards? The, the, the fabulous Professor Tom O'Regan once showed me a research paper. You know how Tom could find things. And he'd find the most sort of strange things in the library. He comes in with this research paper. He says, Alec, Alec, Alec. And he's all enthusiastic. Right. He says, this guy's discovered, like through years and years of empirical research, that... Um, Every one of the social sciences reinvents itself every seven years and forgets its old literature. And this is the Herbert so, Gantz on sociological amnesia. It, it may well be. It may well have been him. I can't remember as well as you, but you have a mind which has a bibliography in it. The, the big list of books. The, 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 big, the blob. <laughs> big list of books. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I know, I know that your brain comes with endnote. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, yeah, I haven't been I haven't been doing an awful lot, but I, I did just do um, a chapter for a book by one Toby Miller, mm. as it as it turns out, uh, which is kind of a, a, a summary of, of my ideas on um, on everyday life. I think I've become a little bit more hardline on that now that it doesn't matter so much, and I haven't got so many people that I don't want to offend. So tell us about your hardline. My hard line. Mm. 
Mm. Ah, well, um, in in all things that pass in, for cultural studies, um, particularly popular cultural studies, they say that everyday life is to be examined. I mean, Lefebvre is, you know, your classic. Yeah, absolutely. That's the man. Yeah. And there's a few others. I mean, Roland Barthes in the category too. There's a few mm. of them. And they don't really say very much about, you know, as, as I was explaining this to somebody um, at, a, at a, a, a social do, and she said to me, no, they're not really strong on washing the dishes, <laughs> you know. And, I, and then I chucked in changing a car tyre because that's one where a, a study has actually been done. Of, you know. um, so, and you see, I think that the, um, what Sachs calls the sociologics or the logics in use or the practical logics. This is Harvey Sachs. Harvey Sachs, yes, Harvey Sachs. Not, not the man who mistook his wife for a hat. <laughs> not Oliver. Not him, no, no. Um, uh, he, he argues, quite, and, I, and I think shows quite consistently, that these underpinning means by which everybody knows what they're doing in order to accomplish everyday life lie at its at its base. They constitute what Eric Livingston, in his book Ethnographies of Reason, which I think is one of the fabulous books, um, in, 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 in Ethnographies of Reason calls the social order within. It doesn't mean within our brains, he means within the society, within the everyday interactions and, and things that we do, such as we're doing now. Um, uh, he opposes these to the what he calls the social order without, which would be things like the economy or patriarchy or these these kinds of components of of uh, the society, which um, people don't necessarily go around using in order to accomplish everyday actions. And so, in a way, there's an, a sense that. Um, there's a bit of bootstrapping going on that the society makes itself by virtue of its common sociologics or, 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 or practical practical capacities about which we don't well we do now know an awful lot since ethnomethodology and conversation analysis have been going for what how many years 30, 70. 70, yeah. Let's say, because yeah. 56 is when yeah. 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 Harold Garfinkel's PhD. papers are coming yeah, out. Yeah, that's right, I yeah. think that's right. So, you know, we could put it at 56, that would be, yeah. I mean, not, I mean, ethnomethodology, of course, being the discipline that studies these sociologics and its offshoot conversation analysis, have, I think one could almost say that they have become a normal science. Mm -hmm. There is an immense body of work with immense repeatability such that pretty much all of the other social sciences, including the ones that have got physics envy, like psychology, um, would, be em would be envious of if they knew that it was there. This consistent, solid body of work turning up, like repeatability after repeatability, um, the same kinds of um, of underlying uh, uh, underlying sociologics um, in the in what is the everyday world of ordinary folks accomplishing ordinary stuff. 
And um, so it's a mystery to me. And I, did, I think we did have a go at this in our, in our earlier book, at the beginning of our earlier book, though probably not with quite so much vehemence as this. Um, this is popular culture in everyday life. That's right, yes. Which published wrote, by Sage. Which we wrote together. Which we wrote together, that's right. And where we look at all sorts of ordinary things. I seem, seem to remember I did one on how you do a crossword. Mm -hmm. Yes, and, and Eric Livingston in his book has got some very parallel work to that. Some very interesting work on drafts, checkers, jeu de dame, whichever one you want to call it. Same thing. Um, and so y you don't learn very much about how people play that game by just writing down the rules. That won't tell you very much at all. Um, what you have to do is to go and observe the kinds of practical logics that they're using in, in order to presumably win that game. And they're completely different from anything that might be thought of as the formal rules. Now, I have in previous work attempted to distinguish those formal rules that you get in, in some circumstances, particularly for games, but also for other things too, um, rules of courtesy and so forth, where you can pretty much write them down, um, and distinguish them from what might be called rules, if we want to call the sociologics rules, um, uh, a, a totally different kind of rule. They're much more like rules of thumb. They're, mu they're, much, they're much looser. They're not constitutive rules, as, as, as Garfinkel calls them, which would be the rules of the game. They're much more... It, and the other distinction that works here is Anne Friedman's distinction between game and ceremony. You, know, you have the rules of tennis, but then you have all the ceremonial stuff like how you toss up at the beginning. There's several ways of doing that. And then there's, you know, the, the, the courtesy signals. If you, if you score a point off a let, there's a courtesy signal. That's not in the rules. Part of the ceremony. Maybe the drinks after the game, if mm. you, if you re have regular, uh, regular shaking, shaking hands if you're men, kissing yeah. if you're women. That sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that sort of thing. Yeah, mm. yeah. And how you receive the trophy or mm. whatever, whatever, and and your relations with the crowd and all. I mean, you. I mean, McEnroe was an absolutely fantastic breach study for all of those things. You could see, you could see, you could see the rules of ceremony in action by watching him not do them. So this, this is John McEnroe, who the, was a noted US tennis player everybody would have known of the him. 1980s, and yes. now is quite a well-known commentator. And, and guitar player. Guitar player, but he, <clears throat> he was renowned for the expression, you cannot be serious. Mm, that's right. Which was mm. accompanied by his breaking rules. That's right. Because he felt as though the laws were not being yes. adequately yes. regulated and implemented mm. by the umpire. That's right. <laughs> it's, like, it's like certain philosophers that I know who are very, very upset when the everyday world does not run according to philosophical logic, when it ought. So, you know, can you explain which is, this idea of a breach case, such oh, as a breach philosophers case. don't cope with yeah. ethnomethodologists regard yeah. as central important, well, no, important, really important. Um, in, in his book, Studies in Ethnomethodology, Harold Garfinkel relates a number of breach studies. Uh, and there are several also in... Um, uh, in another book by, I'll think of it, I'll th it'll come to me, um, 
which involves a lot more of these things. Uh, they're, they're, of course, they're now regarded as highly unethical and can't be done. Um, uh, um, one of my favourites was when I used to conduct these was to send a group of, of my uh, master's students who were doing um, studies of classroom interaction. I'd send them to um, try to get a cabbage dry cleaned, you know, because like you can't, and then they'd report back on the ensuing stuff. Or you get your you get the students to go home during the vacation and pretend to be lodgers in their own homes, that sort of thing, and then you get a report. And the report says what broke down, hence breach. And then when you can see what's breaking down, you can see the negation of that and see how, you know, normal routine life at the dry cleaners or life just pottering around the house with your parents on vacation uh, is actually done. But we don't do those anymore. Oh, me and Wood in their book, um, um, uh, which is also an ethnomethodological book and the title it's so old now I can't remember it have a lot more um, of, of these studies and they introduced a more ethical version called self-breaching where uh, you as the investigator or a couple of people like ourselves say as investigators agree to agree to see what will happen if we breach some kind of thing you know like um uh, we, we agree that you will, for, for example, to take Garfinkel's instance, you agree that um, when I make a statement to you, you will question it, regardless of how you know, um, the one in Garfinkel is, you know, the guy says, um, the, the, the guy's doing the breaching and his wife says, ah, um, oh, these old movies, they all have these big brass beds in them. And he goes, the mall isn't the one that doesn't. I think I can think of one. You know, that sort of thing. I mean, it's that not kind of behaviour yeah. broke up at least two of them. Yes, my yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, this is more or less what they're what they're kind of reporting. So, but we don't. I mean, now you can actually go and find uh, living, breathing um, samples of breach that are going to occur naturally anyway. And McEnroe was one of them. Mm -hmm. You know, so you could really get to. You could actually do an empirical study of what um, what Anne Friedman calls the ceremony aspect of tennis by um, by looking at old tapes of McEnroe. Mm -hmm. Could you give us an example of where cultural studies gets it wrong because of its stalled engagement with ethnomethodology? Because well, you're saying <clears throat> cultural studies practitioners say they're interested in the everyday mm -hmm. and that's what they study. Mm -hmm. Well, they get, okay. Well, I mean, they get, they're getting the they're, they're getting theories of the everyday. That that's a problem. Um, there might be theories of the everyday, and what I've been talking to all afternoon so far might be a theory of the everyday. But the ones that they're getting are wrong mm -hmm. because they start off on the foot, and they start off on the foot of the spectacular aspects. Of, of the everyday, you know, um, Game of Thrones, Harry Potter, um, you know, the, these, these are, you know, yes, they're parts of everyday life, but, uh, you know. But washing up gets excluded. But washing, washing up gets excluded, or just having a chat. Mm. Things, things that we do most of, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, all that early cultural study stuff in the pub. Well, yes, some people do go to the pub every day. Mm. Not anyone I know. Um, I did used to know one when I lived in England, and our pub was called The Boot, and he was called The Sweaty Sock. 
because he was always in the booth. <laughs> so he he was never not there. Mm. So they might have been like that might have been his everyday life. Mm. We didn't know if he had a home to go to. But for most people, especially with the price of beer these days, the pub is a treat. But if one were to and we're looking argue at the treats, we're looking at the, the treats. Treat, but they're also in that case, <clears throat> at least occasionally, breach cases, aren't they? So don't they meet your desire mm. for breach instances? That's a, oh, that's a, that's now now you're breaching me by questioning everything <laughs> I say. This um, is the end of my third or fourth yeah. match. <laughs> <laughs> um, well. I suppose so. I mean, one can learn an awful lot from reading these, particularly the empirical, the bits where people, where, you know, people actually do go out. And I mean, and they tend to use, I think, highly problematic research methods when they go out, particularly the interview. And I'm thinking back here to what David Silverman says about the interview and how problematic it is. And he says, first of all, and I think a very good point, we live in an interview society. Um, something is, is mooted as news, say, on the TV. But it's not confirmed as news until an interview is being done. Mm -hmm. We associate, we have a strange... You know, it, it, it's all, he says it's almost... Well, I don't know if he says this, but it, it is the case. It's almost like a kind of divination. You know, um, the, you know, the, um, the Chewa uh, in, in the you know, f famous study, you know, they go out and slaughter chickens, or the Azande in another famous, more famous study... And, and they look at the entrails. We don't. We send somebody out with a microphone and, and we interview. And we assume then, oh, we've got the truth. And, and our high priests the, of, of media go out and get the truth through, through this act of divination. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing that he says, when you do research interviews and you, you look at what you've got when you come back, you will get fan, fantastic material if you are interested in just one thing, which is... How do interviews work? What are, what are, what are, what's the social rationale? What's the sociologics mm. of interviews? Mm. They'll tell you that, but they will very rarely tell you anything about the thing that you might have been interested mm. in, which would be something like you know the popularity of Madonna's bra, mm. which if that was the topic, what you can see happening, he says in interviews, is you see how the resources get done, but you never get to the phenomenon. So you've got dodgy theory and dodgy method and, and I think an overly dodgy topical interest in spectacular parts or tr the treats, if you like, the treats of everyday life. What about if we said it were, <clears throat> rather than the spectacular, the political, that oh, uh, cultural yeah. studies is driven by the political mm. with the everyday as an adjunct? That. Yes, that's possible. Whereas methodology is driven by the everyday with the political as an adjunct. To that. If, it, if it ever has the political as an adjunct, which it doesn't have to. But you know that thing, I think that, you know, that thing that you also asked me to do on, um, on friendly fire. I think there's an inevitable um, uh, element of politics to that, even though what I'm looking at is the transcript of the conversations that are being had between the base and the American airmen. Mm. And that, again, was taken up by, um, by a guy in Canberra. Again, my memory's not very good these days, who, who actually works for um, uh, agencies that examine black box recordings. He'd actually taken up what I'd written. So, it, you know, it, it black was... Black boxes which are orange in the same which way are as green cards are pink. That's right. Blue. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 
<laughs> he's <laughs> signed without reference. Yeah. So I mean, mm. there's a look. It's it, I, I. I mean, I I've been castigated by other people in the ethnomethodology fraternity. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, when I, I mean, when, certain things that I've written, I remember John Froe saying, you know, this ethnomethodology stuff is is you know politically problematic. And then the ethnos come in and saying it's highly it's highly problematic that you're letting politics get into our enterprise because it shouldn't be there. You know, there was quite a strong line in Manchester, particularly, which is where I got most of my stuff from. Even though I never studied there, I was there a lot. It's not far from Lancaster or Liverpool, as it turns mm. out. Um, and and yet, interestingly, nearly all those people there and I don't need to name them, they're so well known, uh, were of, of active political persuasions, you know? Mm. Um, one in particular had been involved in the early movement to liberate people from mental hospitals, you know? They were, they, they, they were beyond reproach from a left political mm. position. Mm. But they never enter. It's like it's okay. So you might have a left political position and be a bank clerk, mm, sure. and then you you know, and you don't like that doesn't come into kind of giving out you know the you know you might even, you know you're working for the bloody evil capitalist system, but and and you know you're doing that, but like you, it doesn't come into your work. I mean, maybe you're hoping to get away from it in that case, mm. but you know, um, uh, so you know, I, and I've sort of adopted that but but it's like all barriers they leak so you know politics does get in there i mean and i think arguing for um a mundanist approach is, is, is itself political it's political in terms of the the various disciplines involved well i think back to uh, an article that you wrote with mike emerson Cartoons. Yeah, E M M I S O N. Yeah. Also an ethnomethodologist. Yeah. Also retired. Yeah. Also British. Also working in living. Also from Liverpool. Oh, I didn't know. He's that. Merseyside man. Yeah, he went. I think I might have played cricket against him. You're sure he's not from the Wirral? No, he went to Merchant Taylor's Grammar School. Oh, oh okay. He went to grammar and school. I, yes. That explains his accent. And it was a one of those. Um, State funds, direct funding, yeah. direct grammar right. school. Whereas I went to the ordinary grammar school right. on the other side of the Mersey right. Right. at Wallasey High, no, at uh, Oldershaw High, right. Oldershaw Grammar School. Sorry, right. the High was the girl's name. So this essay I spent was more time in the high school than <laughs> the grammar school. In the very first yeah. edition, I think, of yeah. the journal called Cultural Studies, it was. 1987. God, you, yeah, yeah, end note is coming out your ears. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Do you, can you remember the page? Mm, <laughs> anyway, the point of my, my remark is that this carries on from some work Mike had done in 1983 mm -hmm. about the emergence of the economy as an anthropomorphic yeah, entity yeah, in right. the post-oppression period. That's right. The Keynesian triumph of this anthropomorphization. Mm. Now, what if you could take us back to that essay that you and yeah. me wrote on cartooning, mm. then I'd like to make my point, of, or you might make the point yeah. about its political qualities. Well, I, I, my job was, of course, to go in and do not so much, I mean, conversation analysis inspired discourse analysis, if you like, 
on uh, a cartoon, on a collection. I mean, well, finding the corpus, making the corpus, as we do, part of my, our, our job, just as a, you know, an anthropologist has ethnographic techniques, we tend to start out with what is a naturally occurring corpus of things. That's, uh, and it's deciding on the corpus, of course, that's a choice that you make. Um, Mike wanted to look at the cartoons of the period to see if they had it, they could confirm what he'd been saying. About in the, in the Times, yeah, it? yeah, yeah, Times of London. Yeah, that's right. To confirm what he'd been saying. Mm. Um, the, I mean, our cartoons were from a more diverse publication source. Okay. So we had Punch and various other that's magazines right. in there, and, um, I, and and there was a case clincher. There was a case clincher, and I mean, among that group. I mean, there, there were certain other things that supported what he was saying, but there was one thing that I think was a case clincher, and that's a cartoon of Winston Churchill when he was um, Chancellor of the Exchequer. He wouldn't have been Treasurer. He was, yes, before the war. Um, and he's, he's looking at a tree, right? And the tree has got a big trunk with branches coming off. And the branches have got things like employment, health, blah, 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 all these different aspects of what we would now call the economy. And so you would expect the word economy to be written on the trunk. It's not. It's written on the handle of the axe. <laughs> okay? Mm. And I think that captures it really mm. rather nicely. Mm. Mm. I, I, th I may even have a copy in there I could dig out for you. <laughs> to give me the page numbers? <laughs> to give you the page numbers. No, so you can see the cartoon. Wow. Yeah. So the political aspect to this <clears throat> for me as a reader, and it is probably 27 years since I read it yeah, or thereabouts. But it has got to do with your favourite topic, which is economics. Well, it is to bring into question yeah. the idea that this is a naturally existing slash yeah. scientific description, yeah. as opposed to one that is bounded by temporality and geography and contestation. And contest, of context. Context, yeah, 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 yeah sure. So I guess that's the, what yeah. I've deemed. I mean, yeah, as opposed to, I mean, I actually think the best way of approaching that would be a Rileyan one to say, when we talk of the economy, we're making a category mistake. This is Gilbert Ryle. Gilbert Ryle, the Oxford philosopher. Um, in his study, The Concept of Mind, to say that the economy is a category mistake, just as for Gilbert Ryle, mind is a category mistake. Mind is, is, um, is a collecting concept, and it collects other things that you can say stuff about, like mm. belief, knowledge, um, mm. a whole bundle of intellection, um, what else goes in mind... Um, Feelings, possibly, I don't know. Well, you know, there's, there's, he, he lists countless ones of them. Mm. I think we can take economy the same, the same, by the, in the same way, and to say there are lots of these activities that go on that are economic. From, you know, it, it, the bits I'd be interested from the bits I'd be interested in, you know, finding out how people select jewelry or a pair of shoes. Mm -hmm. To, I mean, well, basically, world wars. If you want, mm. you know, they're on a massive scale, and there's a whole pile of things that go on there, right. and we lump them together, and then we have a discipline that studies it. So we lump all the things, the mind things together, call them mind, and then we have psychology that studies well, thinks it studies it, but doesn't. Um, and then you've got a whole bundle of these things going on in the world, usually with, with 
like everyday stuff. That's why I like Hannah Arendt's stuff on, you know. The banality of the banality. Well, this, the one thing I like about it is, you know, he gets up in the morning, he kisses the wife on the cheek, he goes into his office, he sits down, he works out some railway timetables, goes home, has his tea, goes to sleep, goes up there, does it again next day. And before you know it, you've got a Holocaust, mm. you know? Mm. Mm. Um, that, you know, the, there's a lot, there's an awful lot of banality behind or as, even as, mm. these mm. economic matters. Mm. But to then go and say, well, we've got the economy, is a classic category mm. mistake. Mm -hmm. You know, and in Ryle's metaphor, you know, you come to see me here at Murdoch and, I, and I'm showing you around. And, that, and I say, there's the refectory, it's where you eat, that's the worship centre, that's where the Christians go, that's the function centre, that's where we have parties, that's the lecture theatre. And you say, ah, oh, but Alec, where's the university? You haven't shown me the university. <laughs> because it's not that kind of thing. The university isn't a kind of thing like that. It's a collecting thing for all those things. So, and, and so it does surprise me greatly that, that there can be a Nobel Prize in economics. Well, there isn't really. No, there because isn't. They really. fund it themselves. So, yeah, I know, but there is one. <laughs> that people get it. Yeah. So you know when, uh, I mean, I, I'm very rarely persuaded by, by any one who wants to talk about the economy as such. Mm. And I'm, but I'm very persuaded when you want to talk to me mm. about the economic issues surrounding the sales of iPhones. Mm. I'm very persuaded mm. by that. Mm. Mm. But when so, it's a totality <clears throat> that is yeah. meant to have an independent existence. That's right. I, I would want to it. say, why isn't there an ethno-economics? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It can't, it, it can't be an entity. It just can't. And I think a lot of Marxists, including K.M. himself, are, are guilty of that category mistake. Now, we've got about a quarter of an hour left, Alec, and I wanted mm -hmm. to turn on to another aspect of your work, if I could, because in our discussion so far, you've been saying fairly positive things about logical positivists, if you like, analytic philosophy. People. I haven't. Which logical positivist? Well, Ryle. Ryle's not a logical positivist. Well, against air. An analytic. Analytic, an analytic philosopher, analytic yes. Philosopher. Not, have, you read his, have you read his papers on phenomenology? I, I'm, I'm sorry, I was thinking about air. And oh, yes, yeah, no, different, different we've guys. We've been discussing air earlier, not yeah. on Vis-a-vis -vis boxing. And you're absolutely correct. Vis-a-vis yeah. -vis boxing. You're yeah. absolutely correct. Right, so you've been saying some positive things about people associated with analytic philosophy. Yes. And ordinary language philosophy, yes, specifically Ryle and earlier Wittgenstein. Mm -hmm. and Later Wittgenstein. Well, sorry, earlier in the conversation. Oh yes, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. A, no, that's a good one. Fantastic example. That's a great. Yeah. Anyway, what um, is unusual, it seems to me, in your work is that you have an appreciation of that and the obvious proximity that has to bits of ethnomethodology and conversational analysis. Direct proximity. At the same time as you have an interest in deconstruction and of a Derridaean kind mm -hmm. and discourse analysis of a Foucauldian kind, mm -hmm. which are arguably, in the case specifically of deconstruction, often thought of as antithetical to analytic yes. philosophy. So I wonder if you could address that interest in... Ah. 
deconstruction, well, the interest in discourse analysis the, of a non-CA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, in a, in a way, that's kind of like, um, that's like my evening job. And, and I haven't done very much of it. But first of all, what I find fascinating about Foucault is his meticulous descriptions of actual, you know, he, he sees disciplines as sets of events and he gives you meticulous descriptions of them. So if I happen to be, because I am, dare I say, a scholar, I'm interested in various disciplines and what they are and where they've come from. Mm. You know, I have a, an abiding interest in the history of where my ideas come from. You know, I'm interested in the history of ethnomethodology and how it emerges out of, you know, combinations of um, Schutz and Parsons. Now, there's two that don't sit together well. Right, so, you know, you've got... Alfred you've Schultz, got phenomenologists within sociology, yeah. kind of 20th century, Trump, you know, latter-day Husserl, yeah. if you like, and talk at Parsons, founder of functionalism. Yeah, that's right. So you've got a functionalist and a phenomenologist, mm. I mean, at the roots of the thing. Mm. And then you've got the debate about whether Wittgenstein replaces Schutz, which is what my PhD was about. So, you know, I am interested in that. And if you want to be interested in the history of disciplines, and that's the bits of Foucault that I'm interested in, mm -hmm. then that's where you go. And that's why I would. Mm. Um, deconstruction, I w got interested in via the use of one word by Derrida. Um, and that word, although I'd read some before, I, I thought this is, this is very nicely written. This is very, very interesting. This, this... Um, you know, I've read Structure, Sign and Play, which sort of put the, put the knife into structuralism, the, the, kind, of, the kind of critique of Saussurean uh, structural linguistics that I found in there. But the one word that really struck me and made me want to um, actually do something with this stuff was when he used the term pragmatology. Because mm -hmm. it seemed to me, I mean, it doesn't actually tell you very much about what it is. Because, I mean... Well, since we're talking about disciplines, a lot, a lot of what goes on in the work that I do in ethnomethodology goes on under the rubric of pragmatics when it is linguistic, and a lot of it is. So, you know, because pragmatics is the branch of linguistics, as you will know, um, that, that looks at, at, at language in ordinary use, although people do try to find formal logics for that sometimes, which I don't and I've criticised particularly the speech act theorists for doing that. Um, so it was this one term, and it was, what can I make of this? And that turned into, that turned into the book that's called Semiotic Investigations. Which is University of Nebraska yeah, Press that's right. from 19-something. Oh, I don't know. I can't remember the date. So I've mm. got it on my computer there if you want me to look it up. No, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It's also got the yeah. title on the publisher. Yeah, people can right. look it up. That's right. Yeah, if they can find it. Um, it's somewhere in the wheat fields. Yes. In the <laughs> Pushing up a few <laughs> days. Nearly all of it's on yeah. Google Books, actually. Varieties of corn. Uh -huh. Yes. Yeah. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> so, so, tell us so, a bit. So, so that you've got it. In order to get this, I mean, it was mostly. Jakob Mai, who is the very senior editor of Journal of Pragmatics, wanted me to call that pragmatology. And, and the, it didn't go down too well with the publishers. So I thought I'd choose a more Wittgensteinian title. So I've got a lot of them in there. But it's, you know, okay, call me eclectic, I don't mind. You know, or as, as, as Bob used to say, a hodgepodge. 
you know? Um, sorry, that was unfair. Um, the, it's the bits of them that I'm interested in, and, and the bits that I'm interested in do, it seems to me, fit together. Could you give an example from Semiotic Investigations, one of your chapters yeah. in that book? Yeah, I wrote an extensive piece, on, which was a rewrite of a piece I'd published earlier, on um, Bernardo's. And I think there's a very strong political element to that. Can you explain what Bernardo's... Oh, yeah, it was... It was uh, Bernardo set up an institution in Britain at the end of the 19th century um, to... to uh, uh, bring into his homes the people that he, the kids that he called street Arabs, waifs and strays, and many of them were shipped to, eventually, to the um, colonies such as Australia and Canada. And what I was interested in was his use of photography. He photographed every child that came through the doors, gave it a number, catalogued it. It was, it was a, a meticulous it was a meticulous job in, in the direction of surveillance à la Foucault, mm. you know? But uh, what I was also interested, so I'm, I'm interested in document, finding out about that. Mm. You know, photography, relatively new technology, still quite expensive. I mean, I'm getting into the, fu I'm getting into the funding aspect here, mm. you know, a bit of economics. Mm. I'm, um, I'm finding out the proportion of the monies coming in that went into photography and it was enormous it was absolutely enormous and of course then he invented this this technique this this e economic technique he 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 didn't take large charitable donations he took pennies and tuppences from a lot of people and in return would send them a card with the picture of the child and that's how that whole charity which still goes on mm -hmm. today mm -hmm. that whole charitable technique so a, a, a technique for the production of, of charitable action got mm -hmm. going. So I'm, I'm on the ground floor of this, but at the same time, I'm also interested in kind of doing, as it were, a textual analysis of one, just one of the photos, which is now quite a famous one. But I mean, it's re reprinted in the book. Um, and to say, um, what are we seeing when we see a child um, who's been, you know, he also invented the before and after. Here they are on the street. Here they are happy in Bernardo's because the street one was faked retrospectively. You know, what are we seeing when we see this? We know that this, per we know that this person we're looking at is uh, a waif from off, mm -hmm. off the streets, mm -hmm. you know, from the east end of London somewhere. Um, and what is it? What is it that we can see about her that that tells us that, and that that tells us this is what she is? And do we even see in her demeanour and her face a refusal to be that? Okay, and that's where the programmatology comes in. Well, it, it, I can't. I mean, the you, refusal. No, no. No, the programmatology is the what I'm doing with it. But sorry, the, the looking for the refusal is one. Oh I'm yeah, saying. that's among that's, other things too. Yeah, 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 that's right. I mean, you know, in, in the classic Derridean sense, you know, uh, what what does this text have in it that speaks against itself? Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. right. That, that's what I was trying. Yeah, 
<clears throat> it's a wonderful example. And if people can't get hold of the book, it's on Google Books. Oh, great. There is also a version of that in the journal Continuum. There is. Oh, there's a version of that earlier version, not as worked okay. and not as, not as, dare I say, theoretically grounded. Take away all my ethno-methodological qualifications. I said it was theoretically grounded. So there are, we've got five more minutes, roughly. I'd love just very briefly, so people can follow up on your work, to, for you mm. to mention a couple of other of your books that are very prominent. One from 1982, telling how texts talk. Oh, God, not that. There's one good chapter in that. And the other from 1990 with David Wills, which is writing, writing Pynchon, about yeah. Thomas Pynchon. Yeah. One of these, telling how texts talk, I guess is a version of your food. It's the second half because they second didn't half. want the Wittgenstein versus Schutz because they thought that had been gone over. And I didn't think it had been gone over hardly enough. So that's that book. And the writing pension is yeah. taking the extant texts and traces of Pin Thomas Pynchon mm -hmm. so that to that subjecting them to a mixture of ethnomethodological and deconstructive well, analysis. Mostly, no, there's hardly any ethnomethodology in that book. Um, David and I... David Wills and I were working in Townsville at the time. We had a lot of time on our hands. There was not. There's nothing to do in Townsville. You were flying choppers with Christian Metz. No, we, oh, we were flying. We we took. We had Christian Metz out to the reef. That's. But that was that was the treat. Everyday life. Right. Well, the everyday life wasn't at all like. How that. many times did you wash up in Townsville? Yeah, well, a lot. Well, I had two small kids. So I've got a perfect example. I'll just sideline. I've got a perfect example of a zergma today from my PhD student mm -hmm. in Canada. He said, uh, I am constantly changing my mind and diapers. <laughs> <laughs> what if, I don't know the word zergma. I must um, do you know celepsis? Yes. Well, okay. a zergma is a kind of celepsis. Okay. Yeah. When you, you, have, you have one verb that goes with two nouns right, right. in different ways. Right, right. Mind, diapers. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. So, <clears throat> all right. Anyway, Let's... so, um, yes, that, that, that comes out of the fact that David was a... Uh, student of Derrida's, I wanted to learn. What better way to learn than to do some? And what better thing to do it on than the texts of Pynchon, which we both adored. In fact, I, I have a very intimate connection with Gravity's Rainbow, which I will tell you about, but not in public. And of course, you were asking me about my daughters earlier, weren't you? Okay. Um, yeah, and what better way to do? What better way for me to learn than you know directly from a student and and, and very good friend of Derrida's? Mm, mm. Um, how to do this stuff? You know, if I'm going to, if I'm going to say that you know, it, it, it seemed to me that deconstruction wasn't. This was before I'd seen the term programmatology. This came in a much later paper. I could say, yeah, I've read there are some, some books I've read of grammatology, say. But I haven't done anything. You know, and it's in my whole nature to do something. You know, to, to make whatever it is work. To operationalise it. If you see what well, Yeah, but I mean, Derrida does himself, you know. And it's like, well, can I do this? I mean, it's like when I first read Harvey Sachs, I thought, can I do some conversation analysis? I'd just come to ANU. So I went to Australian down, National University yeah. where Alec did his... Doctorate. Yeah. So I went down the road to the local college, teachers' college, now Canberra University, where they had a cupboard full of tapes of classroom talk. 
So that's when I did all the, the classroom tour. It wasn't like, let's go and read Harvey Sachs and then say we can do it. Let's go and get the materials like Harvey Sachs does and then find out if we can do it. Mm -hmm. It was just, it was that kind of exercise. And in, in Townsville at that time, we needed something to be an intellectual exercise. We had to make our own entertainment. We, no, we, and we, we, ran a, we ran a unit called Contemporary French Cinema and Philosophy, which became popular among 10 people, you know, and we showed films in the chemistry lab and had guest speakers like Paul Patton, Sydney philosopher. So, you know, it was, the, 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 there was no way, there was no way I could do collective ethno type work up there. And I needed, I needed the work. I had to be there. You know, I had to, I had to be in a job because I had two young kids. So I thought, I'll try my hand at this. You know, you look at my Vita, it's enormously eclectic like that. It hops from one thing to another. But I think it hops from one thing thoroughly done to another thing thoroughly done. And then it comes back to things that have been there before. I mean, there's, there's, you could probably graph a pattern in it if you wanted to. But um, I've often tried to think back and, and decided it was a waste of time. I'm not going to. I'm not going to go back kicking over the old traces and trying to make sense of this. Yeah. I did once for a job interview because I knew they were going to ask. So I kind of traced it as a set of pathways going from left to right and things branching off. Looked like ended up looking like the London Underground. So, so I've given up. I've given up trying trying to make sense of it all. And you can sort of ask me about bits of it, and and how it might connect to any other bit. Mm. But I don't know. If, 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 yeah. And I think what you've just done is provide us with no, a, no a deconstructive ethnomethodology of your career, no, just as you gave us one of the economy. Okay. All right. No, well, that was just a Rileyan category mistake <laughs> analysis. There was, there was no Derrida in there. But honestly, if, if, you, think that, if you think that analytic um, work and continental work don't sit together, have a look at Ryle's writings on phenomenology. They are stunning. They are absolutely stunning. And not, they're critical, but they're not mm -hmm. negatively critical. And a book by um, Ockrent... Her name's Ockrent, called um, Heidegger's Pragmatism, where you go the other way. And of course, what's mm. behind Derrida and Foucault? Heidegger. Mm. Mm -hmm. and, and perhaps Nietzsche. Well, definitely Nietzsche. But, you know, I, there are, there are a, lot of, a lot of Heideggerians disagree with Ockrent on, on his discovery of. Um, the the you know a possible way of reading Heidegger that allies him you know with the American pragmatists and to a certain extent with the analytic. Well, he was a boozy beggar. That's right, that's right. But he couldn't drink you under the table. <laughs> Do you want me to sing to finish off? I think you probably. No, no, I'm not going to. See, I'm refusal. Well, Alex McCall, thank you very much for coming into the pod, and I hope that very soon you will rejoin us and become one more victim. Okay, thank you. <laughs> thank Cheers. you, Toby.